0: Today's episode of the Naked Preacher podcast is brought to you by Hissy Fitz Snake Obedience School.
1: Hi, my name's Ernie P. Wooster, and I'm the owner and sole proprietor of Hissy Fitz Snake Obedience School. I founded this prestigious enterprise over a decade ago when my sissy pants preacher said after only a couple of barely venomous bites, that he was done with snake handling at our church. That day, I had me a revelations. Maybe people wouldn't be so adverse to wrangling up reptiles in church if them boogers just weren't so dang ornery. That's why I started the Hissy Fitch Snake Obedience School. You bring us your sassy sidewinders and we'll get them broke and ready for Sunday in no time flat. We've scoured the netherest regions of Appalachia to assemble a world-class faculty, and our expert instructors ain't a scared one bit of getting bit, because them fools are crazy enough to bite back. A few days of our zero-tolerance policy for serpentine shenanigans And your snake will be as tame as your household pooch and able to perform just as many tricks, like lie down. So don't be afraid to liven up your church services with the help of your friends down here at Hissy Fitz Snake Obedience School. Hissy Fitz Snake Obedience School. If Adam and Eve would have called us, We wouldn't even be in this mess to begin with.
0: Hello friends and welcome to this fresh new episode of the Naked Preacher podcast. And what an episode it is today. I'm so excited for you to hear from our guest. Uh, and if some of you look at his name, you might say, well, well, he's not a preacher. He doesn't have a church. He doesn't have a, a pulpit or a flock. But that's where you'd be wrong. Uh, because this man does indeed have a congregation. He just addresses them in uh, a different way. He Uh, speaks to them, preaches to them through uh, the pages of the ten novels that he has written, uh, the two autobiographical books. Um, He's got works that have been turned into films, uh, have been uh, acted out on the stage. He is a professor, a teacher of uh, writing, creative writing, at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, and I am grateful to say he's also uh, a friend of mine, a a person who will uh, sit uh, uh, from Sunday to Sunday up in the balcony of the church where I am blessed to pastor. And uh, let me tell you, uh, nothing will make a preacher more cognizant of his or her grammar, uh, his or her turns of phrase, and overall... Uh, message than knowing that a world-renowned novelist by the name of Clyde Edgerton is uh, sitting there listening, uh, hopefully, to every word. So I am uh, very grateful to have uh, Clyde on the show today, and we're going to be talking about preachers as characters, uh, because indeed uh, they are. We're going to talk about uh, preachers in in literature and and in art and sort of the 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 purposes that they serve. Uh, We'll talk about some of the colorful uh, preacher characters that Clyde himself has written and what those mean. And I am especially thankful uh, to say that this episode was recorded in, in basically the inner sanctum uh, for Mr. Edgerton. Uh, his RV, where he does a lot of his writing, he invited me there. And so uh, you'll, you'll probably hear some sounds of uh, the, the outdoors. You might hear an airplane going by from time to time or the, the wind uh, blowing through uh, the, the RV. What I heard when I walked up to it was the click, clicking of those typewriter keys. Um, he is a busy man indeed, so I'm, I'm grateful that he gave us just a bit of his time. Uh, before we do get started, though, I wanted to give just a, a quick listener note. Um, at one point in our conversation... Clyde shares uh, quite vulnerably about an event in his past that caused him some trauma, uh, an event of abuse, and I just wanted to mention that uh, in case uh, any of our listeners might be triggered by uh, such conversation, or if you have uh, kids that you might uh, listen with, um, that comes at around the 37 and a half minute mark and so if you want to uh, just skip ahead to the about 39 and a half minute mark then you should be fine. So that being said I hope you all enjoy this conversation uh, with uh, my friend Clyde Edgerton. Well, it is a great uh, blessing, a great uh, thrill to welcome to the podcast today uh, the the novelist and uh, professor, the great uh, thinker and uh, uh, a good friend, Mister Clyde Edgerton, uh, who uh, has has written quite a few uh, books in in his time and has done quite a bit of reflecting on preachers uh, especially preachers in in uh, southern life here Uh, you know that being something he experienced a lot of in his background and um, so we are are grateful to not only just to talk with him today but for all the contributions that he's made uh, to helping us think about just the the unique characters that preachers can be in uh, American life particularly here in the south and so uh, Clyde, I, I know uh, our, our folks listening would love to hear a little more about your story about how you got into writing.
2: I think uh, I, got, I got into writing probably, if I, if I look at it, and kind of just some high points. And when I was in the 10th grade, um, I read. Uh, I, I graduated 60 out of 120 in my class. So that gives you an idea of I wasn't at to the top of the class. But uh, it was a a rural high school a long time ago, early 60s. And a couple of things happened. One, I read the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson and they struck me in a strange way that made me want to read more. And also a teacher asked me to write an account of uh, three of us trying to free a tadpole behind the school for the school newspaper. And seeing that in print and writing it and making it funny and have it, having it realized as being funny was a big spur. So then I go off to college and decide I wanna teach students to, to love literature because I was introduced to literature that I loved. <clears throat> and then I went into the Air Force for five years and came back and started graduate school uh, to, to become a high school teacher, and I did that for one year. And then I was invited back to, to UNC Chapel Hill to be a graduate student, which I did for as long as I could because I enjoyed it. And uh, my, my emphasis was in teaching and, and, and trying to see that high school students could become as excited as I did from a rural setting about the written word. And so that led to uh, teaching as an education professor at Campbell university and then i started writing fiction i started to i got up enough nerve to i think i had dreamed about it but it just seemed something to be something that was out of my reach so when i was in my uh, actually early 30s i started writing fiction seriously and uh, found along the way a, a a lot of vicarious mentors writers um, whom i loved and i would read them and that made me want to try to do what what they were doing and so it's just been um, books after that and i but i had a free period there of 10 years when i did nothing but write novels and it was it worked well for me
0: that's awesome because yeah you've written what 10 novels is that right and then you've got two memoirs uh and uh so definitely a, a healthy portfolio and i've heard that Writers get asked this all the time, and they sometimes get tired of it, but that won't stop me from asking it of you, which is uh, how, how did the ideas come? You know, how do you, Where do you come up with them?
2: Um, William Faulkner talked about three treasure chests that a writer has, and I try to talk to my student, my writing students about that. One treasure chest is your experience. What's happened to you? Your next treasure chest is your observation and in that treasure chest is everything you've watched happen to other people and also what you've read or know about and the other treasure chest is your imagination what you can make up so you reach down into one if the other one's not working so so much comes from incidents that have happened in my life and i didn't realize that either made up or real. The, 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 when fiction started clicking for me, it was a hot, soft spot in the kitchen floor in the house I was living in. And I crawled under the kitchen and underneath the kitchen was an open well. And I imagined somebody f- falling through that rotten spot in the floor down into the well. And then I thought about why, how and why. And so I started writing the story. I made it up completely. But when, I, when the family came running in to see what had happened in the kitchen, head of the family was, of all people, my Uncle Alfred, who was my favorite uncle, but I never met him. I heard so many stories about Uncle Alfred, and there he was, talking to somebody down in the well. And so that combination of making things up and real led to the first story, which led to the first novel, uh, or actually the third novel. But so things that happened to me would be dramatic, and I would say, gosh, I've got to get it down. And I was just reading enough fiction to see that other writers were doing the same thing, and it just seemed to be as preachers might say a calling Ah,
0: there you go Uh, well I I certainly think you're called to it and you know it's interesting you bring that up because you're the first uh, I think non preacher that we've had on the show but some might say that there are similarities between our professions Uh, what are your thoughts on that
2: Uh, I am a preacher I have an online uh I've done a, a one of these little online things. You can write in. <laughs> you probably don't want to know that, but maybe you got you'll an be, online congregation. I got man. An, I don't have a congregation. I have an online uh, uh, ordination certificate. Blah blah blah. Oh. I think it's the Universalist Life of Christ uh-huh. Minister. Uh-huh. And uh, somebody asked me to do a wedding, and I said I can't do it. And they said, Well, if you can become a preacher, so I just wrote in, and they sent me the certificate. Sweet. So you qualify. My mother wanted me to be a preacher. She wanted me, wanted me to be a missionary. Um or a concert pianist it was kind of her plan so it was kind of... Those Im- are closely related. Embedded, <laughs> embedded from way back.
0: So, one of the things that I find interesting is, you know, uh, I was reading through one of the reader's guides at uh, one of the end of your books, Lunch at the Piccadilly, this this version that I have has a a reader's guide where, where somebody sort of interviewed you and asked you some questions and um, uh, they, y'all talked a good bit about um, you know, the purpose of the book, the meaning of the book, and uh, what you know, what it is to write a book with uh, a meaning in mind. And um, you, you had something interesting to say. Uh, uh, the, the question was, how do you feel about novels that are written to convey messages? And your answer was that messages are for preachers and essayists. Stories are for novelists.
2: <laughs> you would find that one. And uh, th- I do th- believe uh, that novels that I have read seem to contain the message of the writer rather than the story of, of, of something that happened that a reader may be a little more free to find out the answer. I think the parables of Jesus are, mm. are great examples of short stories mm. in a way and that it's a story so it has a little dither it's flexible a little bit you can find your own way yeah rather than when something's nailed down mm-hmm. and a lot of times when we have the right answer uh, any of us novelists included we want to nail it down and we want the reader to believe the same thing or else we feel like we're not doing our job but the novels that i've read which i most enjoyed i think and which i would like to write are, are, don't have a Message. Although they do, they they all have a message one way or another. And, and probably the the thing that pops in my mind just now is, when I started writing novels, I said I want to make big people, little, and little people big. I want to I want I, like I want to do that in my novels, and but not make it obvious. Yeah. Uh, but take credit for anything mark twain said if somebody finds something in your it's just like your sermon uh-huh. it's just like on your first podcast two people come up and each heard different things you take credit for both of them <laughs>
0: <laughs> best of both worlds um yeah well you know in that way it's what you're talking about is is life right because life does not come with a um a guide to refer to to say this is the meaning of what just happened to you you know this is the message although everything that happens to us in, in life there is meaning there's a message there's something that we can take from it but um, but it's it's not printed out for us and it's subjective and um, you, you have to uh, reflect using your own experiences and things like that and so therefore a lot of people will go through the same experience with, with different, different messages. And, you know, uh, I absolutely agree that, that, uh, you know, writing with, with a message in mind is, is a preacher's business. And, and, um, you know, that is a a lot of what we do, but I certainly enjoy, um, I know people expect and like their messages to have that proven point of, well, what do I take away from this? But really the ones that I do most enjoy are the ones where I get to, stand up there and be a little bit ambiguous a little bit just here's what happened here's um, this thought to ponder um, and what does what does Jesus have to say to to you about that you know and just let him go and and uh, those are fun
2: one of the things that I have uh, uh, that scarred me in a way that changed me forever as a child was being in a church like the south which um, nurtured me and wounded me both and part of the wound came in my view from preachers who did have an objective literal message there wasn't anything subjective Mm. And it was all, it was all written down. It was all written down in the Bible, and hearing that from the pulpit by people who were upset in ways that I think is good to be upset. They were intensive. Uh, these are the preachers I listened to as a child, mm-hmm. um, and then and they were loud. And then I would go out in front of the church and the all the people were black aunts and uncles they were tender and quiet mm. and so i carried that with me and have and that works on the way i think about preachers a little bit i had a cousin from florida who didn't go to church come up visit went with me to church we came outside this is i was probably 12 she said why do your preachers why are your? why is that preacher so angry mm-hmm. and I, thought, I remember thinking to myself, aren't all preachers angry about something? And it turns out to be not true. But as you know, when you're a child, you pick up stuff and you remember it forever. And it, it,
0: it, it works on
2: you one way or another.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, speaking of that, that's one of the uh, definite um, uh, archetypes of 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 a preacher uh especially where we come from you know there, there's that fiery anger um often like they're just like sometimes you hear them and it's like man your life must suck <laughs> like what's you what's going on that that that's got you so upset like you know gospel means good news right um and and so that's one of the archetypes that that you uh, get to play with i i think what are what are some of the you know, other archetypes, stereotypes, um, you know, the the idea of uh, the preacher that you enjoy uh, playing with, uh, presenting as you uh, write.
2: Yes. Well, something happened to me uh, when I was writing my first preacher in my first novel.
0: Would that be uh, in Rainey?
2: Yes. Okay. Uh, he came to dinner with the family. And uh, when he came to, to dinner, in my head... Um, what was going to happen is he was going to be somewhat like the preacher I grew up with. Again, um, so what happened, the conversation started, and uh, I don't altogether, oh, I kind of remember, it it had something to do with um, Rainey's, um, uh, the person who worked at the store, and, and, and I think maybe a prostitute was involved, or something, something sexually, but something that I knew the preacher was going to come down on the f- far right. Right, and it,
0: it was—I think it was Rainey, Was uh, she was looking a part-time job, getting yes. a part with her dad's yes. store, and, and she wasn't pregnant or anything, so she didn't have anything to take up her time. So, what would be wrong with her, you know, taking this part-time job? And the preacher uh, surprised me and that felt good and so
2: I let him talk common sense as a person at a dinner table rather than being some way that I had grown up with with preachers and then I, I twice on my head I just tell you in my head I'll tell you that I was in the mountains one day uh, this is soon after that and I, I was eating alone and I got up to leave you know novelist I think most novelists, if you're sitting at a diner and there's somebody behind you in the next booth and they're having an argument you don't leave. You you, you, you you listen to how it works out, and then you decide whether or not you can use it.
0: That means my wife must be a novelist. Well, because she,
2: <laughs> very much. Uh, she likes to listen. So that where is the drama uh, between human beings who are unpredictable? But as I started leaving this diner, in walked clearly a preacher. He had a red Bible under his hand. Mm. He was dressed, uh, he had kind of a flat red face, and he walked by me into the diner as I walked out, and it was like a magnet. I turned right back around to watch him. He sat at a booth. I started looking through the postcards, pretending that I was looking through the postcards, but I was looking (laughs) through the postcard holder at him. He sat down, he put that Bible, red Bible on the table. He pulled out a cigarette, he lit it, lit it. The waitress came up, he ordered a cup of coffee, and I said, his name is Markham Thorpe, mm. and he's gonna be in my next novel. And I put him in my next novel, which was Killer Diller, with a, with a young jeweler delinquent, and, and they together were working on a project. And he did not work. I, I wrote the whole novel with him. I couldn't, he, he, didn't, he didn't, he just didn't come up, he didn't work. Mm. And, you know, it's always – I've never written about preachers. I've written about people who aren't preachers. So preachers yeah. are kind of coming in, and sometimes they'll serve me as a novelist telling a story. Yeah. He didn't work. And here's something interesting. I took him out after several drafts. And in his place, I put a a a handicapped kid, a mentally handicapped kid, from my experience. Yeah. And the novel worked then. Yeah. I don't know – we could talk forever about what that means or how many – but then I started about five, six years later on another novel where I needed a really bad, mean, Mormon preacher, mm. Markham Thorpe.
0: There he goes. He
2: fit like a glove.
0: Yeah, that was red eye, right? Right. Yeah.
2: So, uh, and 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 what was behind the preacher was there was my knowledge of a massacre, uh, a Mormon massacre, a massacre in eighteen fifty-seven. Yeah, yeah. We won't go Learned into that, that, but the, the Mountain Meadows massacre, and so. I had to personify good and evil, and I will say this, because again, it just popped in my head. While I was writing that book, I was very angry in a righteous way at Mormons because of that massacre, because of my knowledge and research about that massacre Mm. that happened in 1857, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I was so angry that I had a bounty hunter hunting for the people the, the Mormon people this is back in 1888 who were involved in that massacre and one of them had a, a pit bull kind of a, a, a catch dog which he would he would find these people and he wanted to and kill them. Wow. What happened to me while I was writing that book is I read another book called uh, Speak Now Against the Day um, about the civil rights movement in the south from 1932 to 1954. And in that book, that's an interesting concept Civil Rights in the South from yeah. 1832 to 54, Speak Now Against the Day. There was a, a d- depiction of uh, a, a, a story about a lynching. And I knew suddenly it came upon me as if a visit from Jesus mm. that had I been, been there. Given the culture I grew up in, I would have been on the wrong side Mm. of the lynching. And when I saw when I realized that, my word to myself, my words to myself were, were, you are a Mormon. Now, that's when I had a really bad view of Mormons. You are a Mormon. And that changed the whole book. Wow. The the book became a different book. So that's connected somehow to preachers.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember uh, Martin Luther King sermon that that i preached one time um because i had been reading a lot of his works the week leading up to uh, martin luther king jr day and um there was a letter to a birmingham jail or from from a birmingham jail and uh, you know i was reading it, and i had forgotten the context of the letter that he was writing to white preachers in birmingham who were encouraging uh, him and the, the his movement to pump the brakes just a little bit now we're we're with you we know that you know everybody's equal and and you deserve rights and yeah but you're you know the underlying you know subtext was you're causing trouble for us you know you're threatening you know you, you're putting us in some difficult spots and we need you to just cool it and uh, you know I was reading that all self-righteously these horrible you know these horrible ministers and then then i just said well you know brother if it was you know 1960 whatever right now and here you are mr white preacher of a good baptist church in the south which side would you be on you know and and it became a lot harder to be so self-righteous and then and, and uh um, yeah, that's a a challenging exercise.
2: It is a challenging exercise and I've I've experienced it in the last five years in a way, uh, when I decided uh in, in fighting what I saw as injustice, I decided to be quiet for about a year. Mm-hmm. And I didn't decide, I thought that was the way to do it. Right. I mean, Martin Luther King to ask him to be quiet uh and I certainly don't put myself in his place, but I've been through the through the spectrum of thinking as a white male I can go into a system and talk to people and solve problems because that's what I've been able to do in the realm I've been working in Mm -hmm. all my life and suddenly I ran up against racist behavior and being quiet doesn't work and when you're not quiet you lose friends which is one of the reasons I understand that if I were doing what I'm doing now Which is trying to agitate people who I feel confident are involved in corruption and injustice. I would lose most of my congregation probably. Mm -hmm. So I think there, there's all these roles. Certainly, you've been you're aware of Mm -hmm. that the preacher has Uh, and shepherd. For you to be a shepherd, I see it. If I had followed my mother's urging and become a preacher, I would have to be a shepherd to all those people uh, that I might easily become angry at where I um, in the situation that I am now so it's a matter of roles I think in a lot of views in a lot of ways I think that roles for everybody um, especially people who consider themselves Christian are deciding whether they're going to talk the talk which is necessary, Mm. talk the walk, which is necessary, Mm. or walk the walk, which is necessary. And each one has different outcomes. And some are easy for me to do as a professor and a novelist. That wouldn't be easy for a preacher to do were I a preacher, simply because of that shepherd role, which has all kinds of implications, uh, tending to a doctor. A doctor, theoretically, and you need to be a doctor theoretically and a preacher theoretically, doesn't tend to the people he likes hmm. or the people who believe what he believes. He's got to tend to everybody. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The activist doesn't have
0: to do that. That's, uh, write a book about that one next, please. I am. Oh, outstanding. It's right over there. <laughs> All right. It's, it's looking like that's a healthy number of pages. Is it close to done? Uh, it's not. I had, a, I had a breakthrough that
2: I haven't had since uh, my second novel. Oh, uh, awesome. 35 years ago. I wrote that novel seven pages a day mm-hmm. uh, in seven weeks, and then I spent nine months revising.
0: Okay.
2: I started this book on April 1st, and uh, today is May 3rd, and I've got wow. um, 153 pages. Yeah. So wow. So it's, it's taking off, and part of it's because of this typewriter, and because part of it's because I, I figured out the form that the book had to take, yeah, and it's related to some of what we're talking about.
0: Awesome! Oh, I can't write, wait to read that one. Um, so, you know, you said something a moment ago that I, I definitely wanted to pick up on, which is that your your preachers, um, they don't really they they help. You know, serve whatever spiritual you know message or, or or themes might be in in your novels, but they're never really the primary um, uh, conduits of <clears throat> of those messages and themes. Um, often it's it's the characters around them. So um, uh, I think about uh, Charles in in Rainy. You know that. Um, at that dinner where that you were just referencing uh where uh, he's talking to to rainy uh or, or about rainy his wife getting a part-time job and um the preacher you know sort of states his you know his opinion which is more of a of an old school southern baptist you know type of um literalistic idea of things but he's also not a jerk about it like you're saying he doesn't come off you know um angry but but charles uh says you know there's thousands of jobs open for uh for for men in the world there's four open for for women and i think he names like housewife you know secretary nurse or something else and he said doesn't don't you think you know we're talking about churches being about justice maybe uh that could be a cause that the church takes up and you know you can feel the preacher getting a little squirmy in his seat and, and things like that so you got him or um in uh, the bible salesman your your uh character henry right uh he is uh he's not a minister but he's a young guy and he's reading the bible really for the first time as an actual bible not not just the children's stories that he's heard and 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 that his aunt read them. but um and he he gets to reading through genesis and uh, which so it's a tough place to start. Um, if you're reading the Bible and you got your mind, you know, working because you realize pretty quickly that there's two creation stories. Um, you know, Genesis one and two, uh, are uh, offer, you know, some two pretty different accounts of of the creation, and you can tell that his mind is is blown, and and then he learns about Abraham and um, and uh, Sarah and and. Uh, she not being able to get pregnant, so she, you know, she, he he's like, she, Abraham got to sleep with you know <laughs> this other woman, you know, like whoa, wait, why am I, you know, this changes my perspective on things completely. And so, really, what we're watching, you know, is is his character and and other characters throughout your novels deconstruct uh, their their faith, and you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't help but you know. Knowing you a little bit and, and having had conversations like this before, seeing a bit of maybe some of your journey in oh, yeah.
2: that—that's that, exactly right. Uh, I started writing these books in the '80s, and I had finished being a Southern Baptist um, with terrible, terribly mixed emotions about that experience. But it was—it was the real thing. Yeah, and I've written about my conversion experience at age seven. Uh, in two different books uh, seriously. Um, it's the kind of thing that some writers who have gone on to, to leave the Southern Baptist Church, for example, uh, have written about in a disparaging way perhaps. I, I, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I mean, but I don't. It, it, was a, it was a kind of a, an, an amazing experience at age seven. But at some point after, for example, going to school, starting to school in Chapel Hill, and hearing my preacher in 1960 uh, blast Chapel Hill. This is when Kennedy was about to become president and, and everybody in the Southern Baptist Church. Not everybody. People were worried about a Catholic becoming a president, right. president because that's a bad thing. And when he started preaching about bad things about Chapel Hill, and I was, I think I was a UNC fan, I don't remember, but anyway, I, that, something, everything that a preacher had said up to that point to in my view, was gospel. Mm, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and so then when I, as a writer, started inventing these characters, who started reading the Bible for the first time, I started reading the Bible for the first time, because that's what my character was doing. You mm. got to be your character. I started right. first with Wesley Benfield, and he started reading, and then I it, it was so much fun, and, and because he didn't get past Deuteronomy or somewhere, I started letting another character read it all the way through, <laughs> and uh, it, it was a it was an enlightening experience for me. It was such a better book than what I had dreamed of right. when I'd heard the little pieces in the Sunday Sunday School Quarterly telling you what to do, yeah. telling you how to behave, not what to be happy about. Mm. So in the process of all that, uh, writing the books and, 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 and meeting a, um, a Methodist uh, preacher and then meeting some Episcopalians and meeting some Unitarians who were – Back when I met them, they were smoking cigarettes in the back of the church, which I thought was pretty weird. (laughs) And so I've had to kind of come to my own conclusions, and part of what I do is love to go back and hear uh, the music that I grew up with, the old hymns and the traditional service, and to hear good preaching, Uh which I hear from you.
0: Oh, thank you. So we've hit around um, uh, some of the preachers that you've written and the the spiritual characteristics, but I, I would love to know who are some of your your favorites and uh you know maybe we could uh, read an excerpt or two of of some of the spiritual gurus and while we were
2: yeah while we were talking uh, and you mentioned that uh, preacher hadn't been a central character actually one has Elray uh, yes um Elray Flowers uh has had quite a journey as a character in my my mind and um he underwent all kinds of stuff but he ended up speaking loudly f- in belief of a concept called nurtures, which was the combination of nursing homes and churches. He, he didn't know why that wouldn't be happening. If you're following the words of Jesus, why would that not be happening?
0: And this is from Lunch at the Piccadilly. This is from for, Lunch for at Piccadilly. the
2: Piccadilly. Yeah. But he has a, he has a storied uh, history, both on the page and also in real life. This is I think, an interesting story. You remember Jimmy Baker? hmm You remember the uh, woman he slept with? I'm not asking you if you remember her, but I'm asking you if you remember the story.
0: <laughs> I, I, I remember, yeah.
2: You remember the person, uh, you probably don't, John Wesley Fletcher, who got the woman for uh, Jimmy Baker to sleep with.
0: Uh-huh, okay. Uh,
2: Jimmy uh, uh, John Wesley Fletcher, J.W. Fletcher, had a TV show and um he was an evangelist very much in the Jim Baker model. He, Jim Baker was his uh, his idol. And he and Jim Baker had a conversation on TV about what had happened the night before. This was part of the scandal. And the reason, yeah, they the re- had a conversation on TV. Yes, on TV, uh, in a in a in a metaphorical way oh, kind of okay. about 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 the the encounter that took Jimmy Baker down. Wow. J.W. Fletcher, John Wesley Fletcher, was my cousin, my fourth cousin. And I knew him for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the eighth grade and he was um, a high school student, uh, he um, one night he pulled a car over. He was bringing me home from a, from a dance, uh, eighth grade dance, although he was older, I don't know why he was there. Well he pulled a car over and uh, without any words being spoken, masturbated. Mm. And I felt I wouldn't. I didn't tell anybody for decades. Yeah. So that's part of the background of J. W. Fletcher, who, uh, in a service healing a woman, uh, she died as a consequence of his being on top of her in the floor of the church, uh, healing her. She died. So that was part of his history, and then part of his history was this connection with Jimmy Baker. Uh, he was, in a way, uh, inspiration for yeah for my L. Ray character, but uh, and because that story about this person masturbating in front of me and the in the shame and secrecy, mm. which it yeah is apparent in in victims of sexual abuse, it was by no means a I was not abused in a physical way, but. Yeah so i had to write a story from a woman's point of view yeah. about that event it's called deborah's uh, flap and snap it's about a little a little uh, pocketbook she owned but i became uh, i had become a character t- to write about that experience in a short story years before yeah so when i had Elray, uh Elray flowers this character based on john wesley fletcher uh he was a good character, and so I had to make. Uh, you can't have a clean characters, yeah, because you don't have clean people, right? And and so I, the fiction that I write has to reflect what's real. So I, I I gave that experience to somebody in the nursing home, yeah. So, uh, but he kind of ran the book, and his preaching, uh, was fun to try to do. I could read just a little bit of that.
0: Yeah, please do.
2: It's not long. It's maybe five minutes or less. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. Carl is a nephew in this book of a woman who's in a nursing home. And in the nursing home also is Elray Flowers. And Carl and Elray become friends somewhat. And here's a section. Carl glances over his shoulder. She is gone. He looks back at Elray. Elray tilts his head back and, glancing now and then at his legal pad, starts softly, almost as if praying. I've changed. My life is renewed, reborn, in a fit of unexplained crying after I almost got eat up by sharks. If you don't believe in rebirth, you don't believe in life. If you don't believe in life, you don't believe in death. If you don't believe in death, you don't know how to live. If you don't know how to live, you will die without living. If you die without living, you lost your chance. If you lost your chance, you missed the boat. If you missed the boat, you ain't sailing. If you ain't sailing, you're sitting. If you're sitting, you need to stand up and boogie. Carl notices a steady increase in energy, volume. Boogie woogie glory, be to every whap, wop, jack, junky, honky, punky, snip, snap, snay, fay, foy, lard bucket caught in the grip of greed. Shout it out. Strike it down. Oh, Lord God, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson, Jimmy Swaggart, Norman Vincent, Peel, all the TV preachers in the land, sentimental slobs that have called on the syrup of sweetness to suck up money from the more sentimental than they are, to lead human bleeding sheep to the slaughter of dreaded dullness and sameology while jerking scripture from an ancient context into the blur of a modern need to control and be right. To control sheep sitting on their couches on their white cotton wool wool hannies, by amen says Clara Clara Cochran, and then it goes on from there. So I don't know. I it was kind of fun preaching from Elroy's perspective.
0: I I tell you, it's uh, as much fun as it was to read. It's even more fun to hear. And he goes on for a while, but I'll be quiet. <laughs> No, I love El Ray because yeah, you talk about somebody that that breaks stereotypes, and um, you know, when I I think when you introduced him and said that he was a, a Pentecostal, you know, evangelist, you know, type, I'm like, oh, okay, I I know this type of guy. You you read a little bit, and you're like, no, nah, I don't know this type of guy. I mean, he's uh, yeah, yeah, he is he is um got some bold ideas and and very charismatic i love the uh that rhythmic you know him him throwing in the the boogie woogie and all that sort of stuff but then also you, you know you were forced to see him as not just a uh you know whimsical type of almost unreal person because you gave him that uh that background uh that yeah. you know where where he um you know was involved in something terrible you know as a as i think he was maybe maybe in high school or, or something at yeah, the time and, yeah. and uh so you you have to look at him as a, a three dimensional character with all the good and the bad
2: if i were writing it after talking to you i would probably look for a way to make him vulnerable in a way mm. that i didn't have on my mind when i was writing the book mm. uh he uh, well anyway that's it's that whole issue of, that you're doing on your podcast
0: i think is is uh, so worthwhile and so necessary well thank you yeah yeah it's um, important to me and uh, I think we need need more preachers like that so uh, I'll be happy to serve as a consultant on your uh, your next novel when it, when you include a vulnerable preacher um so uh, what are are there other other characters that stick out in your mind that you just uh, that you really love writing
2: uh, well you know Wesley Benfield who was who was a juvenile juvenile delinquent and he was taken in by an elderly woman in Walking Across Egypt, Maddie Rigsby and she was very pious and uh, she didn't put up with any kind of uh, lax business from this juvenile delinquent whom she took in as uh, to live with her and he in that book is uh, Walking Across Egypt he is introduced to fundamentalism in a way that is real and saves him from from whatever would have happened to him by living with this elderly woman and then later in in, in killer Diller when he's older he gets serious about preaching mm-hmm. and reading the Bible for the first time so that again that was fun for me and interesting for me and kind of enlightening for me in ways that helped me find how I can live for justice as I understand it
0: as spoken uh, by Jesus. Awesome. Awesome. So we've talked a a lot about, you know, sort of the the, the preachers and uh, the more, you know, uh, virtuous types of characters, maybe, you know, tending toward the side of holiness. Uh, but you've written some scoundrels too. And um, w- one of those um, is in where where trouble sleeps. Um, a, a guy who just sort of wanders into town, just he's up to no good and he needs a town to sort of take advantage of and some, a place to take advantage of. And, and you had mentioned how, uh, in, in some you know commentary I read that that was based on a, a Flannery O'Connor her Connor character from uh, her her short story, A Good Man Is Hard to Find. Um, it also brought to my mind um, uh, characters like Anton Chigurh in uh, Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men, and um, it, it just all of this gets me to thinking about the idea of of evil and and sin. And so, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about what it's like to write you know, the, the virtuous or at least thoughtful side of, of faith characters who might try uh, to, to do well and, and follow Jesus, even, you know, whether they succeed in, in doing so or not. What about the, what about the, the evil ones, the, the sin? What's that like to write? Wow, that character that you just
2: mentioned that I introduced into uh, Where Trouble Sleeps, his name was Jack Humstead. Just a slight background. I wanted to write a novel. Flannery O'Connor said, you can write the rest of your life about what happened to you before you are 12 years old. But most young writers don't realize that. And so I suddenly said, what happened to me between the time I was, when I was 6 to 12? What, what? And so I started writing down what happened to me, scenes, etc. And my mother, um, I had a kitty cat run over and The kitty cat was flopping around in the yard, half dead, and my mother finished him off Mm -hmm. because that was what a good country woman would do. Right. You don't. And so that was a strong memory. And there were other memories, and I started writing them down, and I realized I was going to have a novel with just some basic memories. So I said, You got to introduce a bad guy. So uh, I did. And it's so funny. I just had him, he he, he was going to do bad things, and he came to town. So you had this nice little community in the South, and this bad guy comes to it. So that creates some tension and suspense. But I had two different people who interviewed me or talked to me, I can't remember which, after that novel was written. And one of them said to me, that's one of the most evil characters I've ever read. And the other one said, that's one of the most likable evil characters I've ever read, or something like that. And I I realized it was my problem. I couldn't make him, I had to make him interesting and likable to me somehow as i wrote him i wanted him to be just as mean as he could be but he didn't and it's it's a good problem to have as, as a novelist because in my view a goody-goody character with a white hat throughout a novel is not interesting as mm-hmm. much not much suspense and tension there and it's the same for me with a character who's really bad although these this day and time it seems to me that a lot of characters are found to be interested and produced are just pure evil mm-hmm. and it's just not interesting yeah. because flannery o'connor said uh evil is not interesting sin is and in my view it involves uh it involves choice um so therefore it's more interesting but that particular character uh oh gosh uh and then then uh i don't want to give away the ending of the book but people probably won't read it anyway but uh, (laughs) that's the spirit in 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 flannery o'connor the bad guy kills an old
1: lady yeah
2: and uh I knew that this book had to reverse
0: that.
1: Hmm. There
0: you go. There you go. Oh, good stuff. Okay. So, um, I I've, I've loved this this conversation. Uh, and, and do you do you care to give any teases as to uh, what's what you're up to these days? Because I mean, I, I know you, you mentioned a, a book that you're working on now, but you're you got a lot of irons and a lot of fires, sir. Um. What
2: what I'm working on now is uh, something I'm not talking about, so that I don't jinx it. I've yep. always talked about what I was working on, but I, since you're here and I have a microphone, of course I'm going to talk about it, <laughs> and and pray that it won't jinx it.
0: No, there's this. We have a no jinx policy. Oh, here. good. I pray, oh, I pray heavily over every episode. Then I
2: have no problem. Yeah. I can talk about it till the cows come home. No, I won't talk about it that long. But uh, I've been. I discovered a. Some systemic racism before the word was popular to a lot of people in wilmington in 2015 and i stayed quiet about it for about a year and um then i got loud about it and then i got banned from all school properties and still am and then about two years ago i met an activist um reverend dante murphy and he and i started to Working And I watched him work on some issues that have to do with corruption and child sexual abuse in New Hanover County. Mm. Um, if you've been in a war, and I have, and if you want to write about it as a writer, novelist, or a nonfiction writer, you've got to get distance from it. And that can happen in a, a lot of ways. One way, if you let enough time pass, you've got distance from it. Another way is to write your distance. Just write hard and throw away the bad drafts, and finally you get there. Mm. They're, they're, it's complicated, but I've been in a uh, this experience over the last five years, and I haven't been able to get distance from it. I haven't been able to write about it. I've tried to infuse it into two novels, mm. and it didn't work Yeah, and for any number of reasons. Like when a sermon doesn't work, maybe you figure it out later. So now I'm writing... I figured out how to do it, and I'm I'm kind of I'm having a good time writing about that experience in ways that I hope will keep some tension and suspense going for a reader.
0: Awesome! That sounds exciting. Sounds like a, a good way for you also to to process this because I know that's been a big part of your life, and it, so it is. Um, and we have to process those things. And, and what an amazing um, uh, platform you have to to be able to do that. So I'll look forward to. Seeing what comes out. Um, you know, preachers love uh, a good preacher story. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I I would be remiss to pass up the opportunity sitting with a storyteller uh, and not ask if he had any preacher stories. So, please, share with me any that you might have.
2: I have three pop in my head. I only had one three just popped in my head that's one uh, is uh, that's from
0: that means that the holy spirit is here you know yes that,
2: right yes and I'll, I'll go fast when i was 12 or 13 our preacher in the church that i've been talking about in this program um this is so cliche for preachers to hear i'm sure it's not cliche it's that he had a wooden leg he shot his leg off when he was 12 on a hunting accident wow. but it is clicheous, and he was one of those people um one of those angry shouters from the pulpit that I was fused to in some ways, he ran off with a woman from the choir. Did and, he really run uh, I don't know if he ran or not <laughs> i don't know I don't know the back story, but how
0: well the the wood leg worked
2: he that <laughs> <a good point. laughs> he um and left uh a wife and five children behind. oh it's a sad, awful story, so you know that was my first view of the preacher who wasn't way up like Uh you talk about way up above the congregation because i had experienced i had experienced preachers in no other way and he was about the fifth one i knew about second story um second story was told to me by lex matthews who was a he died in 1987 he was a a episcopal priest he was an amazing um christian in that he got people involved in doing things that they wouldn't have done normally to help i mean he he had me working with migrant workers and other places and he had me doing things that i just would say why did i get into this it was because of lex matthews he was he was an amazing person and he talked about his first time being in a church as a as a seminary student to 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 preach and (laughs) this is episcopal church the preacher leaves for three or four days and says i'll be back in three or four days there's nothing going to happen but if it does you know you take care of it. And he says, yeah. okay. Somebody dies. There's a funeral. Lex is in front of the church at the end of the service. The end of the service comes. This is a new church. And he doesn't know how to stop to do what to do. So he thinks to himself, if I just walk off and walk out the door, the, the funeral home people will take care of it. Yeah. So he goes walking off to the left and opens the door and... And there's a broom closet and so he steps in the broom closet and closes his door and thinks you know it'll take care of itself and then he hears this (laughs) (laughs) he opens the door and the funeral home director or someone says you need to lead us out (laughs) that's the second preacher story the third preacher story is kind of a vicarious story that somebody told me when I was writing Lunch at the Piccadilly about a, a nursing home. People started telling me stories that I could not use in fiction, but some people told me stories that I could use. Um, two, I've got another one quickly, uh, it's not about preachers, but this this grandmother is driving and her grandson is in the passenger seat and the steering wheels way up here you know above her head and she's yeah. driving along and she runs up on the curb and she runs up on the, and, and 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 the grandson says grandma she runs up on the curb again he says grandma what are you doing you just ran up on the curb she said oh am i driving <laughs> that's not a preacher story but i thought about it but the preacher's story is uh billy graham apparently this is what somebody told me was in a nursing home And he was in the lobby. Uh He was talking to a woman uh, in a wheelchair. And he'd been talking to her for about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And he said, suddenly, do you know who I am? And she said,
0: no, but there's a nurse down at the end of the hall that can tell you who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'll keep you humble. Yeah. Uh, Well, speaking of... Keeping you humble. Uh, well, one last thing that we like to do on the show is uh, is uh, something called the skin invitation, which is an opportunity for uh, for our guests to be a bit more vulnerable and and share um, uh, some answers to three rapid fire questions. And, and normally I ask it of preachers, and so I wasn't going to ask it of you, but since you have confessed that you are, um, you know. Uh, uh, via the internet ordained as a uh, uh, a minister and can perform weddings, you qualify for this section of the podcast. So you stepped into this yourself. Uh, first question is, uh, what is uh, one of your the biggest mistakes you've ever made? I would say in ministry normally, but, you know, just generally.
2: Uh, it has to do with writing, I'm assuming. Sure. As, as I'm not, I mean, that's what popped in my head. I mean, gosh. Um, I think... Uh, writing to my agent complaining about my publisher thinking that she and I had a confidential relationship ah. and she sent the email to my publisher Ooh. that was a mistake
0: gotcha yeah well anything you say to me is confidential and I will not send to your publisher so don't I worry knew about that. that I knew that when you walked <laughs> through the door Um. So, second question is: uh, What's what's something that you're that frightens you? Um,
2: what frightens me is the chaos of the universe.
0: Mm. Period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and much is said in the silence. Uh, third question is: uh, What's something that you that you just absolutely rock something you think that you do just really well you am proud of i think i connect with young
2: writers on the manuscript they're writing mm-hmm. well by writing down everything just about that pops in my head about what they're trying to write and talking to them in comforting ways about how it can be better um what this means is that I don't talk a lot about, although it's hard for me not to, I don't talk a lot about my own writing mm. or what, what I'm doing or how I did it. I talk about what they're trying to do, ask them what it's about, try to get them to say not the plot but the theme. What is it about loss? Is it about loyalty? And by saying that, they learn what to take in, of what to put in and what to take out. Mm. But also just by not overpraising I ask my students to take out the words brilliant, genius, wonderful when they evaluate each other. Mm. Because that's not why you're being evaluated. You're being evaluated to get better. Yeah. So when they trust me that I'm not ripping them up, but that I can frankly say, this is what how you, I believe. I may be wrong. Don't follow it, my advice unless it makes sense to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Here's how I believe you can make this manuscript better. Yeah. I think I'm pretty good at that, and that's a consequence of many years of
0: doing it yeah awesome sounds good uh well then i i now feel comfortable sending you my sermon manuscript each week Oh means um, you will uh, i i do not uh, believe that you'll be tempted to use words like brilliant or magnificent. my agent will get in touch with you about the small fee that's I'll, involved <laughs> it'll be worth it look i've got a uh, a, uh discretionary fund I'll, I'll charge it to that <laughs> I'll be um, sure
2: to when I contribute on my check, it'll <laughs> say like a discretionary fund. Under the, that sounds the bottom. good.
0: Sounds good. All right, man. Well, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your uh, your schedule to uh, let us know a, a little bit more about the characters that preachers can be. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. I,
2: I enjoyed it immensely, and I so much appreciate what you're, you're doing with uh, the
0: podcast. Happy to do it. Oh, man, what a great conversation with Clyde, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as, as I did and definitely encourage you to go out and, and check out um, any of his works. Like I said, there's, there's plenty of them. Um, His first book was Rainy, and, and I think that's a great place to start. That's, that's one that I read recently and uh, certainly find relevant, uh, even though it was written decades ago uh, to, to so much of the world today. Um, but uh, really, there, there's not a bad place to start. So uh, get you a Clyde Edgerton book and, and enjoy it, and I bet it will... Uh, bless your heart and and maybe even bless your ministry bless your preaching as well so thanks again to Clyde for joining us and for being the the uh, unconventional preacher that he is and to all the rest of you pulpiteers out there until next time be real